Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Window. I am Dr. I, and I am here with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Joe, and we are delighted that you chose to spend your Saturday afternoon with us as we look through the window of our lives. And I want to start off by talking about something that's important to all of us that is in the window, and that is Minority Health Month. April is Minority Health Month, and it was started a long time ago by Booker T. Washington to identify the Negro disparities in health care. And isn't it strange that we're still talking about disparities for people of color? It's strange, but it's true. We still have that problem, but we're still dealing with it. We're still collaborating with like-minded organizations to reverse the trend, and we hope that someday we will not see that in our window. So let me also um, shoot over to Dr. Joe and see what's in her window. Well, my view is probably a bit cloudier than yours based on what some of my colleagues have told me. I've spent as much time as I could in the past week actually um, listening to the, I'll call it for right now, the George Floyd case. Although we should be very cognizant that it's not George Floyd that's on trial. George Floyd is dead. And so it's Derek Chauvin who is on trial. And I know others have told me that they haven't been able to watch much of the trial. And of course, it's been on for several weeks now, and it is time consuming, and none of us can, can sit by the TV nonstop. But I've chosen to, as much as I can, keep it on in the background, as much as I can catch analyses in the evenings. I've chosen to do that for, for two reasons. First, because it is gory, and it is gruesome, and it is awful. Um, but I have turned my head quite often in recent years on things that were too painful for me to watch while I continue to live through things that are too painful to live through. And so I'm a child of the civil rights movement and throughout my life I've seen us get amped up as we should about issues and then the furor dies down somewhat and then it ramps up again. And I would hope that generation after generation after generation we won't have to keep doing that. So just as my son tells me, gee, he doesn't like to watch slave movies anymore because that's depressing. I initially said I can't watch the George Floyd trial because it's depressing, but I find out that I've normalized oppression, and so I wanted it right in my face. And also, I, I, I'm a legal person, and so I've been fascinated by the almost textbook um, depiction of what the legal process is like. So I have kept my eye on it, and last week we devoted just a bit of time in our show to an update on it, but it's been two weeks now, and that trial is still going strong. So this afternoon, we're going to spend much of our time focused on that, but not just with Dr. Iris Cooper and myself, Dr. Joanna Williamson. We have two experts on, and when I say experts, I truly mean that. We have a judge, and then we have an attorney who you heard last week, and they're going to give us their perspectives and why those perspectives are so important. And so given their very busy schedules, I want to bring them on now, Dr. I, and then you and I can talk more about it near the end of the show if we have time. But 
But let's start based on legal protocol. Let's start with the judge. Okay. We are so extremely honored to have with us today a judge from the Ohio 10th District Court of Appeals, Judge Laurel Beatty Blunt. And we'll talk more about her background momentarily, other than the fact that she's been in her current position for several years. Prior to that, she was a judge for the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas here in Central Ohio. And so she is, based on her her ethical requirements for her position, she can't be here with us today to render any judgments or opinions on anything other than what's going on in her courtroom as appropriate. But you can tell from her title that her, her schedule is probably pretty busy, and yet she takes time out regularly on her social media pages and here with us today to educate us on the ju judicial process. And so I'm going to to start by welcoming her and then asking her first, why is it so important to you that we know just the mechanics, the specifics of what goes on in the courtrooms and the and the jurisprudence process in America? Thank you for being here, Judge Beatty Blunt. Well, thank you so, so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And the reason why I think it's so important for us to understand each part of the trial is because we need to understand what we're watching and we need to understand the the process and how it leads to the whatever conclusion happens in this trial um, for example we hear a lot of different terms we see a lot of things on tv but we don't necessarily know how they play out in real life and it's not that often that we have an entire trial that is live streamed like this one is. So we all know, of course, when I say we all, I'm looking Dr. I right in the eye, we know what we saw. And so could you please explain to us what the process is for those of us who are catching part of the trial or listening to analysis? And I would encourage everyone to at least stay informed of what's going on because you're going to care about the verdict. I guarantee you our listeners will care about that. Can you please just educate us on what it is we've seen over the past few weeks and what we're likely mm -hmm. to see in the weeks to come? Well, um, you've already heard that the jury has been picked, obviously, since the trial started. And that process took a really long time um, because the point of picking the jury is to find people who can be fair and impartial. And in this case, that's had a lot of publicity, people who haven't formed an opinion or say that they can keep an open mind. So that process already happened. You have 12 jurors, and then I it's my understanding that they're down to two alternates. Those alternates would be there in case something happened to one of the 12 regular jurors. Um, you also saw on TV that both sides gave opening statements. And what the opening statements are designed to do is to give the jury a roadmap of what each side thinks that the evidence is or isn't going to show. And the important thing I think that is essential to keep in mind here is that the state or the prosecutors have what's called the burden of proof. And that means it's on them to prove everything. It means that the prosecutors are the ones that have to show that Derek Chauvin committed every element of the three charges that he's charged with. And he's charged with three charges. 
you have second degree unintentional murder where the state has to show that Mr. Chauvin caused Mr. Floyd's death while he was committing assault. You also have third degree murder where the prosecution, prosecution, excuse me, has to show that Mr. Chauvin caused Mr. Floyd's death. And in this case, it's a little different. Um, the statute says that he caused Floyd's death by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others. And the difference there is that with a third-degree murder trial charge, they don't have to show the underlying assault charge like they do in the second-degree unintentional murder. And third-degree murder is largely um, reserved for situations where someone is doing something extremely and extraordinarily dangerous. The, sec- the third charge is second-degree manslaughter, where the state has to show that Mr. Chauvin caused Mr. Floyd's death by being very negligent and taking an unreasonable risk when he uh, restrained Mr. Floyd, and that his actions put Mr. Floyd at risk of great death or harm. The other thing to keep in mind here, and I think you've seen some of this throughout the testimony, um, is that the law gives protection to police officers. And Minnesota law allows police officers to use force that a reasonable peace officer in the same situation would believe to be necessary in certain circumstances. So what the state has to show is that what Mr. Chauvin did does not apply or cannot be given that same protection that the law offers to police officers because what he did was unreasonable. Now, what the defense will try and do, and Mr. Benton can speak on this better than I can, um, having done it for many, many years, but they, what the defense is going to try and do is show that the state cannot prove every single part of those three charges. They also will try and show that what Mr. Chauvin did was a reasonable use of force. So after the opening statements are done, the state will put on its case, and that's what you see happening now, even up until Friday. You have witnesses that are called, fact witnesses, the people that were there. Those were the witnesses that were called at the very beginning. And then you'll have a lot of expert witnesses. You know, you've seen a lot of witnesses already, even up until Friday, about police training and procedures, about the reasonableness of Chauvin's actions. And then you'll also have scientists that will come in and talk about the cause of death. Was the cause of death um, pre-existing heart conditions? Was it ingestion of drugs or was it the neck hold? And each side will get a turn to examine each witness. You'll all, we've already seen lots of exhibits, including police body cam footage, cell phone footage, maps, and pictures. Now, it's also very important, and you have to remember that the defense will have the opportunity to also put on its case, but they don't have to. And that's what I mean by the burden of proof. It's all on the state to prove every element of all three charges. The defendant doesn't have to call witnesses or introduce any exhibits. He doesn't have to get on the stand himself. Um, And that is a constitutional right that he has. Um, not to testify if he chooses not to. If the defense does choose to put on witnesses and exhibits, 
then they have the right to do that, and it will go in the same order that you had in the state's case, but in reverse. So the defense attorney will examine the witnesses, and then the prosecutor will get to cross-examine them, and it will go back and forth. After that, you have closing arguments, and each side will get a turn to make a closing argument. You know, this is the point in the movies where, you know, people are banging on the table in front of the jury and everything like that that doesn't happen in real life. Um, But what that is designed to do is to give each side the opportunity to tell the jury what they thought the evidence that the jury just saw did or did not show. Then the jury will get the jury instructions from the judge The jury instructions do two important things. One, they give the jury instructions on how to conduct their deliberations. It tells them you can't talk to anyone about this case but each other. It will tell them don't do any research. Don't go out Googling anyone or anything. Don't listen to anything on the radio or anything like that because you want the jurors to decide the case based on the same information that everyone got. The second most important thing that the jury instructions do is that they actually serve as a guideline about the law that the jury will have to apply to the facts that they have found to be true. So the jury will get their instructions. They'll go back in a jury deliberation room by themselves. There's no no one back there with them. And when they come and go um, is monitored. And so we ask them to talk about what they saw and what they heard and then to decide what and who they believe. And in this instance, um, this is a decision that is about quality versus quantity. So if one side has one witness that the jury believes, that is enough, even if the other side had 20. Um, Again, quality versus quantity. And then they're asked, to apply what and who they believe to the guidelines, the law that they have in their jury instructions. They will be asked to consider each count and they can come back guilty or not guilty on some counts, all counts or no counts. Um, so note here also, it's not a finding of guilt or innocence. It's a finding of guilty or not guilty because a possible scenario here that happens sometimes is that the um, the state did not prove its case, which doesn't necessarily mean that the person is innocent. What you have to remember, it's all about whether the state proved every part of those three charges. Because if they missed any one part of any charge, then the jury will be instructed that they have to rule not guilty. So, for example, if you go back and consider the parts of each charge that I just talked about, they all talked about causation. Causation is going to be a big issue throughout this trial and will continue to be. And because if the defense can put a hole in the causation argument, then the jury will be instructed to find Mr. Chauvin not guilty. Now... Also remember that the verdict has to be unanimous. All 12 jurors have to come to an agreement. And if Mr. Chauvin is is found guilty 
on any charge. It will be the judge that does the sentencing. Now, Minnesota has a little bit different sentencing guidelines than Ohio, and they actually have a sentencing grid that they follow that heavily weighs whether um, the defendant has prior convictions. So if Mr. Chauvin is charged here, having or found guilty here, having no prior convictions, the presumption on the second-degree murder charge would be that he would serve 10 and three-fourths years to 15 years. Um, and then for the third-degree murder charge, it's the same, 10 and three-fourths years to 15 years. And for the second-degree manslaughter charge, he can be sentenced to up to four years. And then, of course, if he is found not guilty on all charges, then the case is over. So that's a lot, and some of that is very disturbing. So let us unpack that for just a moment. When you talk about the jury, can you explain to us what the term reasonable doubt and the importance of that? Well, because in the law, you have different standards where you have to show, you have to meet a certain bar in order to um, convict someone. And with the criminal law, um, the reasonable doubt is the highest standard. And it's defined as proof required to validate a criminal conviction um, that you would think is more likely the truth that the defendant is guilty. So clear and convincing is like 50, 51%, where reasonable doubt is a much higher standard where you're thinking it's more than likely that it happened. So if even one juror heard one thing that causes them to say, well, hmm, that one piece of evidence has me kind of confused or has me uncertain, that could be all that's needed for Derek Chauvin to not be convicted? Uh, generally, yes, because, again, on every single count, the jury has to be unanimous. So say, for example, if one juror um, were not to believe the evidence presented to them um, about causation, that the neck hold was actually the cause of uh, Mr. Floyd's death, then they can vote not guilty and he would be found not guilty. It's called a, um, it's a, called a hung jury. And, it, and all it means is that the jury could not agree. And so what happens then? And so what happens then oftentimes is that the prosecutors decide whether they want to try the case again or try and negotiate um, some type of plea deal with the defense. And so is there ever a situation in which the judge weighs in on the verdict? No. When you get to a trial, the judge is strictly the referee. The um, job of the judge when you get to a trial is um, mostly determining what witness testimony, what exhibits can come into evidence for the jury to consider. 
And so those are those side conversations that sometimes we we see the, the judge having with the attorneys. Is that correct? Oh, it, yes, exactly. Those, you know, a, a trial is a, uh, a living, breathing thing. Um, and especially when you're dealing with witnesses, you know, sometimes you don't know um, what someone is going to say or how they're going to say it. And so, um, and then, of course, all testimony has to be within the rules of evidence. So a lot of times what those sidebars are, are the attorneys talking about either the form of a question or whether a question can be asked or an answer given. So can judges and juries really be impartial? I believe in in this situation, I may be wrong, but I believe that there are nine jurors who are not of color, just using that as an example. So can a jury mm-hmm. ever be impartial? And are judges really impartial? I think that, um, you know, like everyone else, judges and jurors and anyone else involved in a trial can have their own biases. Um, we bring who we are to the situation. Uh, for me, the question is always, I have to, or not the question, my task is to check myself and remember why I am there. I am there to be fair and impartial. That is part of the reason there's such an extensive process to pick jurors, because you're doing the very, very best that you can to determine if someone's had a personal or professional experience that would make it very difficult for them to be impartial. So I suspect I know who in that courtroom is not impartial and that would likely be the attorneys and so Judge Beatty Blount if you could stay with us for for just a few more minutes we'd like to shift gears and we'd like to go to the attorney we have on the line and ask him for his perspectives as well. Welcome Miss uh, Mr. Benton how are you today? Fine good afternoon everyone good afternoon Judge. I want to tell you a little bit about Attorney Benton He is recognized by the Ohio State Super Lawyers as one of the top criminal defense lawyers in Ohio. And he is a member of the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, the Ohio State Bar Association, and the Columbus Bar. And he represents clients in all courts, including death penalty cases. That's got to be really uplifting. But anyway, Fred, tell us, in your words, what did we see this week? Well, what you saw was the prosecution continuing to build the foundation uh, to the point where they will be able to, at the conclusion of their prison, at the conclusion of the trial, guilty. Last week you saw the uh, officers who testified about the use of force and the propriety of that. Week prior to that, you had uh, witnesses who given eyewitness accounts as to what they saw, and there was a lot of use of the uh, various video cameras that was used, and that also continues through through uh, this uh, process. And yet again, this week, all the transition, beginning with the chief of police who testified directly responsible for supervising testify in no uncertain terms that the use of force was excessive against their policy so 
Fred, um, we're having some technical difficulties. You're going in and out. Okay. Can you hear better now? Much better. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, so this week you began with the testimony of the chief of police who was responsible for supervising uh, Officer uh, Chavin, Chauvin. Uh, he, te- he made his uh, testimony in no uncertain terms that the use of force employed by the officer was not only against his training, but was also against department policy and also against the moral ethics of the uh, police department. And I believe his words were, that is not what we are about. So you had a continuum of, of that sort of a presentation by the prosecution building upon last week's presentation, which gave the various eyewitness accounts and also testimony regarding uh, the use of force. The transition this week shifted to the medical personnel, uh, where you had the um, uh, a testimony of a pulmonary uh, ex, uh, expert, forensic expert, who provided testimony regarding the mechanism of the uh, breathing process and and, and particularly as he went through the selected uh, photographs and video uh, recordings that showed in very graphic details the precise moment by which at which uh, George Floyd died and clearly that was at the point in time in which uh, officer uh, Chauvin's knee was upon his his neck. Uh, You you follow that with the uh, testimony of another pathologist who gave her assessment uh, as to uh, what was found in uh, uh, Mr. Floyd's body at the time of the autopsy. Now, while she did not perform the physical examination, she was able to give testimony that essentially, uh, as with all of the doctors, negated the defense theory that the cause of death was due either due to some underlying medical issue or that it was due to uh, any consumption of drugs. So each of the physicians who testified for the emergency room physician the pulmonary uh, 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 forensic pathologist, uh, the forensic pathologist, uh, and then uh, even the uh, medical examiner who did the actual exam of George Floyd, all laid the foundation that eliminated, one established that uh, Derek Chauvin was, in fact, the source uh, of the death, and two, that the death was not attributable to any of the factors that the defense counsel has uh, set forth. Now, you know, when I was listening to all that, Fred, I was wondering, I wonder what the FOP is thinking right now. Do you think that they made a decision uh, internally that, hey, we're not going to touch this, we're going to let it go? Well, no, no, no. In fact, um, um, it's, it's my understanding that the whole entire defense is being underwritten by the uh, Fraternal Order of Police from that jurisdiction, uh, primarily due to the fact that that's part of their obligations in representing uh, members of their of their organization. So that, um, unless I'm mistaken, the cost for the expense for this defense does not com- come out of Derek Chauvin's pocket, at least not a substantial a portion of that. But this case was I, unique. I read the same thing too, Fred. And, and this case was unique in that um, is is highly unlike. For this is the first time I've ever recalled uh, where you've had everyone from a chief of police on down giving testimony against a fellow officer. He was way up under the bus after all of them got up there and said, nope, 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 we don't do right. it that way, we don't do it that way. I've never seen that before. And I think right. that's very unusual unless they made a decision that this is going to be the cheapest way out of this. 
Well, that that might be the case, but also, I mean, you would like to think that there's finally come a point in time in which someone recognizes that the out, sheer outrageousness of the conduct is something that can no longer be defended or that you can no longer hide behind a shield in order to justify. I wish that would happen with some of the situations here in Columbus. But in any event, where do you think they're going to go from here? This this is coming to kind of a climax. What, what's the direction? If you were um, the attorney that is representing um, or, or defending George Floyd's situation, where's he going? Where well, well a couple of things. Where we are now is that you'll see, and you have seen the prosecutor again very methodically, very effectively build his blocks towards the conclusion of this case. We are now towards the tail end of that process. Um, my, I imagine that the remaining witnesses after the medical examiner may be more so in terms of dealing with the admission of crime scene evidence and, and, and other matters that may have been uh, collected from the scene or just basically kind of clean up witnesses. Uh, then from there, you're going to have the defense with their opportunity to present their case. Now, between that shift from the prosecution's presentation to the defense presentation, there will be an argument made by the defense, commonly what's referred to as a motion for an acquittal, where the defense will ask the judge, outside of the presence of the jury, to dismiss one, if not all, charges against his client based upon the fact that the uh, state has failed to prove any one or more elements relevant to the particular counts that have been uh, lodged against him. Uh, at that juncture, the presumption is in favor of the prosecution uh, with respect to the, uh, uh, the sufficiency of the evidence to support the fact that they met their burden of proof. But the judge could, although I don't see it happening in this case, the judge could agree with defense counsel and say, yes, they have not uh, met their burden of proof as to this one particular element, and as a result of that, uh, dismiss that particular charge. So that would be an, an, an absolute acquittal on that particular count. Again, is that likely to happen in this uh, cause? I don't see that happening at all. Now you're going to have the defense uh, uh, with their presentation, and what the defense will do now is to pick up on the and continue with this strategy during the prosecution's presentation and that is try to pull out nuggets that he can rely upon in making an argument that there is reasonable doubt in his case remember he does not have to prove that his client is innocent he simply has to prove that the state has failed to meet its burden of proof reasonable doubt doesn't mean that um, the alternatives that are being suggested by defense counsel are in fact accurate or are in fact true. But if you can raise in a juror's mind, one or more jurors' mind, that that is a, a probable outcome or a probable factor, then that enhances the likelihood that that particular juror may make a finding uh, that Mr. Chauvin is not guilty. So that's why you see the constant reference, although it's offensive at times, relative to the uh, crowd control, relative to the uh, uh, consumption of, uh, of drugs, relative to his heart condition, um, and, and the fact that even though there was, and also even as it relates to the amount of force that was used by Derek Chauvin, mm -hmm. that that was a technique that at some point in time was considered to be valid. And there, there was one uh, particular, I can't remember the officer's name, but who testified about the use of force, and there was a diagram that was presented, and the diagram showed 
an officer with his knee in the shoulder area of a of a suspect. And the defense counsel was able to seize upon that, and I guarantee you he will hone in on that when it comes time for closing arguments. My understanding is that the, they will use a medical examiner who has been previously used and, and quite consistently by the prosecution in, in making this claim in, in other homicide cases. Uh, so he's a well-respected individual and one who testifies uh, very persuasively. So that's certainly going to be an interesting part of this presentation. The, the other question is going to be whether or not Derek Chauvin will, will take the stand to testify. I, I highly doubt that. In fact, I would, I would be shocked to see if he does testify, because even though an officer has uh, tended tend to be fairly good witnesses when it comes to testifying, because they have the experience in doing so, it's a different situation when your life is on the line, or your neck is on the line, I should say, and the pressures of cross-examination uh, are very difficult to, to, to manage, particularly uh, under these kinds of circumstances. So you think that the defense team is doing everything that they can, given what they've got? They've got video showing the whole event, the prosecution, I mean, the defense, the prosecution does. Well, as, as, as a defense lawyer, I would tell you that in most cases, we're called upon to make bricks without straw. We have to make uh, lemon, <laughs> lemonade out of lemon, and we have to pull rabbits out of the hat. Uh, you, can't, you have to deal with what you got. You have, you have to play the hand that you're dealt. And so you look for any kind of thing that you believe gives you a credible argument to make to a jury in trying to um, get at least one to say uh, that there's reasonable doubt, at least in their mind. Yeah, I heard someone speculate that if they can even perhaps come up with some point of even minor disagreement between the medical experts that they could say, well, gee, if, if professionals can't agree on it, then how should we able be able to agree here in the court? Well, they got the three that were well, here recently. They were all on the same page. Well, but, but well, again, if, if his medical examiner the makes the point the that allows him to, that allows the defense to make his argument at closing, that's all you need. You just need something that, 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 that develops during the course of the trial that will support an argument that you make at closing. So you don't have to argue with the witness. You don't have to argue with the other counsel. You don't have to argue with the judge. It's you get your point and you sit down, and then you use those points in making your closing argument to the jury. And Judge Beatty Blunt, you had a point, too? I was saying that that's, you know, where you have experts that are saying different things, that's part of a jury's function in that deliberation room is to decide which expert they believe and then apply that testimony to the to the law. Ah, the jury again. So bottom line is it doesn't really matter a lot what we think or what we saw. It comes down to those 12 people. H how does one get to be a juror on a case like this? Well, you, 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 don't, you don't volunteer. I can guarantee you that. I, I would. Uh, <laughs> you, you, have, you have to be a registered voter. And then um, in, in, in most uh, states, in some states, they also use the driver um, uh, registered drivers as well to try to expand the jury pool and it's a random selection so say that again you have to be a registered voter yes to be considered to be part of a jury right and then if you should ever get a jury summons you have to agree to respond to that summons and not try to interject some of the loopholes that I believe are possible to get out of jury duty 
Well, a jury summons is not necessarily an invitation. It is, okay. in fact, a court order for you to appear. Mm-hmm. Now, now there will be folks who, for uh, legitimate reasons and some for not legitimate reasons, attempts to avoid that process. But one of my concerns, particularly as a black lawyer, is making sure that we have a representative pool when it comes time for our, our juries to, 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 to be presented. And oftentimes we find that there is, at least from my perspective, uh, a deficiency of the number of blacks who are part of that pool, and then to the extent that they do become a part of the pool, uh, having a desire to remain a part of that pool for purposes of, of actually serving as a jury. Now, Fred, based on your experiences, and since you're, you've been in these cases where there might be death penalty as a punishment, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I mean, th- this is not a death case. Uh, I want to make no, that clear. Right. Um, and, and, and as I've cautioned folks before, this, the, the, uh, while I, I, I applaud the prosecution in their presentation, I think they've done a solid job uh, in presenting the, the, the strongest case possible. There still is no guarantee. You, you have to, it's kind of like trying to call a football game at halftime. You, you have to wait and see how the other side presents their case before you can reach a, a final conclusion. Uh, we, we, we all thought that uh, the case against the officers who beat Rodney King was a slam dunk, and come to find out those officers were later acquitted. Again, I'm not predicting that that will be the case here. I do think the prosecution will get a conviction. Uh, the only question here is as to which count. Um, because as, as the judge indicated, you have uh, a certain level of deference, as it were, given to officers um, and that's why the standard is a reasonable officer, not a reasonable person. And uh, folks in general have a very um, favorable view of law enforcement, uh, and, and, and they want to give them the benefit of the doubt. They recognize that they perform a, a, a tough job, a job in which they are literally placing their life on the line. So if you could conceivably have, have a jury who say, well, uh, yeah, he, he may have done this, he may have done that, but he didn't really mean to do so. Uh, he was dealing with a tough situation. He's got an angry crowd or angry mob, as the defense would categorize it, um, um, yelling at him. He has a, a, a very large and muscular man who is wrestling with him and, and refusing to be handcuffed. Um, he had, uh, he's not a doctor, so he doesn't know at what point in time is too much to have a knee on the neck. There, there, there are a variety of ways in which a prospective juror, or one of the jurors, excuse me, could in fact rationalize a, a, a verdict of not guilty. Getting a conviction on the most serious count, which carries, I believe, is 40 years, I still think the state has a, has a chance at that. But again, there, 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 there may be some jurors who may not be willing to go that far. So why do you think there's a deficiency, you said, of... of of people of color in the juror pool, if I understood you correctly. Well, I, I'm quite honest. I don't really don't really know the answer to that um, because there are so many variables that come into play. I do know that um, when you, I mean, you have a certain statistical disparity that's automatically there because of the uh, overall population. I'm just talking about here in Franklin County, but uh, you know, I, I've had cases where. Uh, 30, 40, 50 jurors are called, and out of that pool, I might have maybe 10 who are black. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can question the randomness of the, uh, uh, of the summons. 
Uh, you, you can question whether or not jurors are being screened out uh, before they get to the courtroom. I, I just don't know, but I know I do know that when I see those circumstances, or even in advance of those circumstances, you have to be very vigilant in taking steps to make sure that decisions are being made by the lawyers and the judge and not a jury commissioner and deciding who should come in and who should not. And then there's a process of questioning I, prospective jurors. Judge Betty Blunt, you had I something to one, hmm? one of the One of the difficulties there, too, is that, um, you know, to serve on a jury, you know, you're, you are there all day. Mm -hmm. um, and some people don't have jobs that will allow them to, to not be at work um, for a week or even longer and only be paid $20 a day. Does this jury get to go home at night? I remember way back with the O.J. Simpson jury, they had to stay in a hotel and couldn't go home. They are not being sequestered during the course of the trial. I do not know what the decision will be as to whether or not they will be sequestered for purposes of deliberation. I, I did hear something today just as I was leaving to come to the studio, and that was, I guess the judge called a juror aside. Someone said that a juror had received a text message. Apparently she got a message from her mom yesterday saying something like, looks like a bad day. And so the judge questioned that. What, what does a judge do in a situation like that where there's some concern about whether a jury is getting information that they shouldn't be considering? Does that happen, and, and, and how is that handled? Um, it does happen, um, it, and it's not always because of bad intentions, but you have to remember that part of the goal is to have the jury um, not form any opinions until they've heard all of the evidence, um, and then also to... For no, for no one to have any evidence that another juror does not have. And so there would be some concern if you knew that a juror received a text message like that. So what would have to happen is that the judge, in the presence of the attorneys, would question that juror about the text message and um, see if they received any information uh, from the person that texted them, uh, or if there was any type of conversation about uh, what happened and go from there to see if the juror could still serve. Well, we believe here at the window that you need to have a clear view of what's going on. And so you two have both been very informational and candid about what's happening but projecting forward we hear a lot about the term systemic now and if we were to say you know what we just don't want there to be any more George Floyd what can our average listener do to impact this process especially if they're not a an attorney and they're not a judge and they're never seated on a jury what can our listeners do other than watch? Well, that's a, a, well, I, a, a, I would say make sure you are registered to vote. In Franklin County, that is where the potential juror list comes from, is voter registration. And so I, I will also say this is a, a moral experience that rather than a judge baby blunt, there is nothing like... Uh, 
being on the bench and the jury, uh, potential jurors come in your courtroom, you have a black defendant and there are no black people who could potentially serve on the jury. And although I tried it once, it is very difficult. It's almost impossible to challenge um, that. So I would encourage everyone to register to vote. So then if given the opportunity, they could uh, participate in the process. And then I would also say, make sure that you are voting on your judges and your prosecutors because they have so much power and make so many decisions in this process. So let's talk about that for a moment. Some judges are appointed and others are elected, correct? Correct. Can you explain that for us? Um, appoint, well, if you are a federal judge, and here locally you may know Judge Marbley or Judge Cole, they are both federal judges. So they were appointed, and once they go through the appointment process through Congress and the president, they have their jobs for the rest of their lives. Um, other judges that are elected are state court judges. So I'm a state court judge. Um, Kimberly Cocroft, Jared Skinner, Jiza Page, Monica Hawkins might be other, Terry Jameson might be other names that you're familiar with. Uh, we are all state court judges. So we have to run uh, every six years for an election. Now, if there is a vacancy, for example, there was a vacancy recently in the municipal court because, unfortunately, a judge passed due to COVID. That did give Governor DeWine the opportunity to appoint someone to that seat, but then that person has to turn around almost immediately and run for election. So for judges that are appointed, and I would assume that means, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court judges all the way to the top, does that mean that voters can't impact those types of appointments at all? The closest impact that a voter can have on one of those appointments is calling their U.S. senator or the president's office, uh, writing letters. The same way that they would weigh in on legislation would be the same way that they would weigh in on a judicial appointment. And so who is it who makes those appointments? Are those elected officials who make the appointments then? Uh, yes. Uh, so, for example, in the U.S. District Court, for example, where Judge Marbley serves, that if there's a vacancy, that process largely goes through the senior state senator. So, in our case, Sherrod Brown. Um, and then for the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court right below the U.S. Supreme Court where Judge Cole serves, that process largely goes through the White House. I have just um, a question. I think, um, Fred, you said you had a, another appointment. I do have a, a question to ask you if you have to leave that I think okay. our listeners would be very interested in. How much longer do you think this is going to go on? What are the next steps that we can expect to see next week um, so we have kind of a, a sense of what the strategy is? My, my my guess is because I believe the prosecutor is wrapping up his case, um, and I don't see a long presentation from beha on behalf of the defense. I think this case could very well be concluded next week. 
with closing arguments probably the following Monday. Don't want to make a prediction on how it's going to go? I still think that uh, uh, the, the prosecution will be able to get a guilty verdict. The question will be asked to uh, which counts. Um, and I think the count that may be most vulnerable is the most serious count only because of the fact that you still have that, for lack of a better term, that bias in favor of police officers. Uh, but again, I don't know how, I don't know the composition of this, this jury pool, um, and I don't know um, how they express themselves during the voir dire process or during the selection process. Uh, to get a read. I, mean, I know there's a profile in regards to breakdown regarding race and, and gender and the like, but that doesn't necessarily give you enough information to assess which way this jury is leaning. I have heard uh, through the various news accounts that the jurors have been paying attention, um, and some more so than others in terms of taking uh, copious notes, uh, and most of the time their attention seems to be riveted when the prosecution is making their case as opposed to when the defense is asking questions. Um, again, how do you read that, read, read, or how much you read into that is all a matter of speculation. Where, where is uh, Attorney if, Crump? If I could. Was, is he in this courtroom anywhere? Representing I believe, the family? I believe he sits with the family and they only have one family representative in each courtroom. So I don't know that he's actually in the courtroom. But he has an influence just by being there, I assume. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. No, I wouldn't agree with that. Oh, okay. Is there the possibility of civil charges brought by the family in addition to the criminal charges brought by the state? There, there, will, there will be civil laws. Well, in fact, there was a settlement, I believe. Yeah, uh, they, they, they the settled for $27 yeah, million. Yeah. Dollars. So they, I'm sure that they signed something, some type of release in their settlement agreement saying that they won't bring suit again, at least based on the same behavior. Does that impact the, the decision in the criminal case at all? No. No. And if I could add one thing, um, one thing I have found uh, that has been a little bit misleading, you hear when they uh, talk about the second degree a murder charge, which is the the most serious offense. They talk, the media talks a lot about that the sentence could be up to 40 years. But when you look at the Minnesota statute, that 40 years is um, really reserved for people who have had an, a similar conviction in the last 15 years. So the likelihood that Chauvin would get 40 years is, is is not very high at all um, because of the way that the Minnesota sentencing guidelines work. If he's found guilty of that second-degree murder, the judge is really working between a 10 and 3 fourths years to 15-year sentence. So if he gets convicted at all, does it mean we've turned a corner? Again, we, we would prefer not to be here 50 years from now. We might not be here 50 years from now, but we'd prefer not to be here 50 years from now talking about the same things we were talking about 50 years ago. Have we turned a corner if there's a prosecution? And will this impact sorry, the cases conviction. that we have even right here in Columbus? Well, I, I don't know that it, again, I think you have to be cautious in terms of how much you read into any outcome regarding this case. Certainly, uh, I think there's a tendency or temptation to see a broader in, impact if he were acquitted as opposed to that of, of a conviction. 
Uh, but you have to understand that even after uh, the uh, George Floyd's death and the the, the, the rampant uh, and, and the widespread uh, reviewing of that video recording, there were still instances of officers assaulting uh, citizen black citizens. Uh, so it's not it is not it has not had a deterrent effect as it relates to those officers. Uh, likewise, I, I don't see how it necessarily has an impact uh, on cases outside of Minnesota, but it does highlight an important point, and that is the need, the importance of officer uh, training uh, and, and making sure that there is a, a, a better understanding or, or a new um, approach as it relates to community policing. So what I, I, I would agree, and I would also add um, that one thing that really could affect at least Minnesota policing is that on the third-degree murder charge, the one that I was saying that is a, a reserved for when someone has done something extremely and extraordinarily dangerous, um, this would be, if Chauvin is convicted of that third-degree murder charge, this would actually be the second time a police officer was prosecuted under um, that statute. I don't know if you all remember, perhaps, I think it was maybe 2019, there was another police officer whose last name was Noor um, that was maybe responding to a call about sexual assault, and the officer pulled up, and he actually ended up shooting the person that called 911, and he shot across his partner out the window, and he was convicted under the Minnesota third-degree murder statute. So potentially you could have, you know, you could say that that one case is just, you know, something that just a fluke. Uh, but if you have two convictions under that statute, that could be something uh, different and precedent setting, at least in Minnesota. So to our listening audience, in summary, what can we do? First, we can stay educated and informed it's really hard to change a process if you don't understand the process we can participate in the process through at a minimum being registered voters so we are in that jury pool and so that we can have some impact on voting for positions for judges who are elected into office and for judges who are appointed, someone appoints them. The most extreme case is the President of the United States and the Congress of the United States elected officials who are responsible for Supreme Court justices. And so those are things that we can do as well as continuing to advocate for the term you use, community policing. And perhaps we can talk more about that in subsequent shows. For example, here in Central Ohio, I believe there was just a police review board that was named? Should we assume that's part of a community policing effort? Yes. And we also have to educate our family and our children because it's not happening in the schools about where they are and, and what they how they have to behave out in the streets so they don't get in trouble. 
So we couldn't have had two better sources here with us today. Thank you first so much for being so very generous with your time. We know that there's a lot of work that you need to do. In addition to your professional responsibilities, you're both very active in the community and with your family. So thank you to attorney Frederick Benton for being with us for a second week to talk about this and to Judge Laurel Beatty Blunt. You're on the bench for how many more years before you come up for election again? Oh, I'm I'm fine. I won't be asking Mr. Benton for any more money until 2024. <laughs> so everybody remember her name and we'll have her back on again. But, but thank you too very much, not not only for being here today, but, but for the work you do, like you're doing today, to get involved in the community and for your extraordinary professional expertise. We know that that comes from years and years of education and schooling. I believe Judge Beatty Blunt is a graduate of Spelman and of Vanderbilt Law School and Attorney Benton, I believe you're a Capital University graduate as well. So thank you for your commitment and your dedication to to be in the positions where we still see far too few of us. And to help us identify what we've seen through the window this week. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and we will see you or we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.